I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome, everybody, to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This week, we are exploring the history of how to become a naval officer, with particular focus on the American experience and the foundation of the Naval War College in Rhode Island. But before I do so, I wanted to thank all of you who have taken the time to review us on Apple Podcasts. This is hugely important. It will help us go up the podcast charts. And that means that, quite simply, more people will learn about maritime history. And that, of course, is our goal. So do please leave us a five-star review and we will read it out. From Dave MCESQ. Um, truly outstanding. This podcast is truly outstanding, greatly detailed and informative, while still being very easy listening. Thank you very much, Dave. Grogus92, brilliant, really good podcast, easy to listen to and jam-packed with interesting facts, guests and anecdotes. Presents the stories well, without droning on, like other similar podcasts. One of the best out there. What a brilliant review. Thank you very much, Grogus92. Another here from Bert Contador. Never disappoints, always amazes. An outstanding podcast. If I could only listen to one podcast, this would be it. Listening to Sam's podcast has opened a whole new world to me. It is ceaselessly fascinating. Listen to any episode and I guarantee you'll learn something new. Incredible and often moving. Being a Devonian too, there's always a good dose of Devon-based stories too, good lad. (laughs) Thank you very much, Bert. Um, Bill Lindsay, hi Bill, Um, a regular helper uh, with the SNR and the Navy Records Society as well. At last, a podcast for our maritime nation. Five stars. Well done to all involved in launching this series of podcasts. Great topics with interesting participants and excellent hosting by maritime historian Sam Willis. One happy customer. Hopefully there'll be thousands more out there. Let's share and spread the word. I can certainly confirm there are thousands. We have broken uh, the 120,000 downloads, uh, which I'm absolutely delighted with. So do please keep spreading the word and we can make this podcast as important as it should be. 
The Naval War College in Rhode Island was founded 138 years ago, but it's certainly an interesting time to consider the topic. I read in the news today about how an American nuclear submarine, the USS Nevada, armed with no fewer than 20 Trident II strategic nuclear missiles, recently surfaced at the American naval base in Guam in the Pacific. A clear demonstration of strength, or in the official wording, of readiness and commitment. This, of course, is all pointed in one very clear direction. East. This is not a general warning to the world, but a very specific one to China and North Korea. And there is no coincidence that this very rare appearance of an American nuclear submarine comes shortly after a North Korean ballistic missile test. This is an interesting place to start, I think, because the focus in the British newspapers, at least, is all on the material of naval power rather than on the personnel operating it. We do not hear about who is wielding this naval power, but about the object of the power, about the submarine. Now, that's very different when you look back in history, whether it's the American Chester Nimitz in the Pacific Theatre of the Second World War, who he knew a thing or two about Guam, one of his great rivals, the Japanese Chuichi Nagumo, uh, the British Beatty and Jellicoe in the First World War, Horatio Nelson, John Paul Jones, Francis Drake, and so on. So often the history of naval power is very much associated with people and with personalities. But what about the people who wield this sea power now and who wielded it in the past? More specifically, how does the US Navy try to guarantee the competence of the men and the women who lead their fleet now? And how did they do it in the past? To help me find out more, I spoke with Dr. Evan Wilson. Evan is Assistant Professor in the John B. Hattendorf Centre for Maritime Historical Research at the US Naval War College in Rhode Island. Established in 1884 as an advanced course of professional study for naval officers, the US Naval War College educates and develops leaders at specific stages in their careers from all services, US government agencies and departments, and also international navies. I'm lucky enough to have visited there um, many years ago now when I was writing about the American War of Independence. It's a really a wonderful, wonderful place. But to tell you more about it, here is the excellent Evan Wilson. Evan, thanks so much for talking to me today. Sam, it's a pleasure. Um, so the US Naval War College, what are the origins of the War College? You guys are in Rhode Island now, aren't you? But uh, the origins are not necessarily there. That's right. Uh, most people date the origins, or at least the founder of the War College dates the origins of the War College to his time serving in the US Navy in the US Civil War, uh, when he was uh, captain of USS Pontiac. Uh, this guy's name is Stephen B. Luce. And uh, in the US Civil War, uh, Charleston, South Carolina was where the war famously started with the bombardment of Fort Sumter. Um, and for the next uh, three or four years of the war, it had resisted all Union attempts to um, take it back. Uh, it was a high priority target for uh, Union forces because there were a lot of uh, blockade runners that were running out of there and obviously it was symbolically important. And so the U.S. Navy had sort of blockaded it for a few years to little effect. Um, and in uh, January 1865, 
Um, William Tecumseh Sherman showed up with the Union Army into Savannah, uh, famously marching to the sea and burning everything in, in his route. And he uh, met with the young captain of USS Pontiac, Stephen B. Luce, and said to him, um, I don't know what you guys are doing. Basically, th this uh, I'm going to show you basically how this is going to work, which is I'm going to cut off Charleston from the rear and it's going to fall into my hands, he said, quote, like a ripe pear. And now Luce later said that the scales fell from his eyes at this moment. And he realized that there were certain sort of principles of war that you could study that would help you understand why, if you cut off Charleston from the sea, it would, or from the land, it would uh, fall into your hands like a ripe pear. So that sort of got Luce thinking. And so this young uh, commander uh, in the Navy in the 1860s, uh, had experience uh, up in Newport where the they had to move the U.S. Naval Academy because Maryland was obviously not a safe place for the academy to be given the uh, state of the Civil War. So it moved up to Newport and Luce had been a part of it there. So we knew that there was this uh, great harbor in Narragansett Bay. He was starting to think about some of the principles of war that you might need to understand if you were a naval officer. And so uh, he spent the next couple of decades thinking about this problem. And that's... Uh, that's where uh, the, the British show up, actually. That's the, the helpful connection here to a, a podcast at the Society for Nautical Research, which is that uh, Sir John Knox Lawton uh, met Luce and uh, they started a correspondence and uh, helped. he helped Luce sort of think through what are the principles that you might need to understand. And so that correspondence is really uh, that plus the experience in Charleston, I'd say, is the origins of the War College. Okay, so they then decided that, you know, there were certain principles of war that which could be studied which they could pass on to future generations I, I i do get this story about charleston but the idea of cutting it off from the sea it's not exactly rocket science i can't believe they hadn't a thought of that first uh, yeah it was also though very difficult to get a union army to charleston so keep that in mind right that the the navy had been blockading charleston from the sea but when the army shows up in the rear, Charleston then falls into their hands like a right pair. So it, it's not that it's no, uh, particularly complicated. It's just that um, it proved ineffective. The naval blockade proved ineffective. Luce had been involved in the blockade for a while. It was the largest blockade in American history, and it had failed. Uh, and so when the army shows up, Luce says, ah, I see it now. Um, it's interesting as well, though, isn't it? Because the whole principle of, of here, of what we're just talking about, is that um, there are basic principles of war which can be studied and they go back millennia in some instances um and i suppose that having a a a rigorous institution which could make sure that they were not overlooked was the you know the real the motivation behind behind um uh, the Naval War College establishing it there but it's if we, we should say that it's particular it's not just for uh, young Young officers joining the navy. It's um, the Naval War College is it's for the education of um, sort of middle-ranking officers and above, isn't it? Specifically, it's not for young officers. And so, navies have had academies uh, since the 17th century, uh, at least. Um, and you can look at some navigational schools in the 16th century, even that that are sort of like naval academies. So, uh, educating young officers in seamanship and navigation and sort of the basic principles of of going to sea. That's been part of navies for, uh, since navies basically have existed in, in European history, certainly. Um, what Luce identified, though, was that after you've um, become an officer and learned the basic tools of your trade, 
there was no place to go to think about sort of higher level thoughts about war. So strategy, uh, how to think about uh, the Navy in relationship to the nation. All that was assumed was that uh, it would appear, uh, Jeff Till has a great line about this, it would, if you were on the quarter deck, then all these principles would uh, be imparted to you like the Holy Ghost. It would appear to you as a sort of uh, spiritual experience on the quarter deck and you would understand how navies fit into to, uh, national strategy. And Lou said, well, that's not really true, right? You need a place to go to actually learn about them and to think about them. And that's the origin of the War College is for the mid-career officer to come and think about, okay, well, what would it mean to have uh, a higher command? You know, the mid-career officer is, is technically adept, understands seamanship and navigation, understands uh, the, the technical tools of his trade, but has not maybe yet gotten to the uh, higher levels of command. And that's the role of the War College. Uh, that was the role of the War College in the 19th century, and that's still true today. Yeah, I wonder to what extent there was a problem in convincing these officers that it was a good idea. That so you've got you've got an officer who's worried about torpedoes, mines, and aircraft, and you're actually going to sit down and say, right, you're going to. I need to tell you all about, uh, you know, what happened in 1777 or something like that. I wonder whether that, you know, the convincing them of the value of history. How difficult was that? It's still difficult. I don't think, uh, yeah. I mean, it's so, something that the War College still struggles with today. So 1884 is when the War College is founded in, in Newport. Uh, Luce gets the sort of uh, political um, backing to do it and, and takes advantage. Um, but it nearly closed a couple years later. And even today, we struggle with convincing officers that taking them away from the fleet and sticking them in Newport and saying, okay, you know, stop thinking about unmanned warfare or, you know, underwater, undersea drones or the next thing that China's developing and instead read Thucydides. Like, that's not something that comes easily to a lot of officers. And so uh, that's been a struggle since the very uh, foundation of the War College. And it's something that we still uh, struggle with today. But Luce's point was that you need that. You need to be able to get away from the sort of technical, high, you know, the, the changing uh, technology of the day, and you need to step back from it. And when he founded the college, of course, that's right on the cusp of one of the most dramatic uh, periods of technological change in naval history, right? It's not just the torpedoes and mines you're talking about. It's going to be aircraft and radios and all sorts of other developments that come, you know, these underwater screw propeller and steel and all these things are coming online right as the War College is being founded. So it was uh, something that he was absolutely thinking about uh, on at the, at the time, and it's something that we still struggle with uh, today. It's um, it's an interesting problem, isn't it? I wonder w- whether it's actually something that uh, a lot of institutions struggle with. Full stop. Getting people to study history, um, but I suppose, of course, the what you're doing is you're just encouraging people to think in a certain way. Um, and often, I think the detail of of what you're coming across is a distraction. But the real value is actually you've trained people to think, to exercise their minds on the issue of warfare, so they can then apply it to the present day. Right. The point is not to say that everything that Thucydides says about triremes in the Peloponnesian War is what we need to be thinking about when we're uh, you know contemplating a, a future war in the Pacific. Right. That's not the way we're we're, we're trying to teach the students. Uh, what we're trying to do is get them to think about sort of broader issues, try to think about how navies fit more broadly into national strategy. Uh, and as we'll talk about in a minute, I'm sure uh, it's also about talking to the other branches, right? It's not you, you got to get beyond the quarterdeck, beyond the bridge, get them get them away from the sort of narrow naval issues of you know, uh, how your ship works and how your ship should be deployed tactically and try to get them to think uh, not just about fleets, but also about uh, national power and, and those sorts of issues. Yeah, and, and it's it's not just other forces necessarily, but also um, 
thinking about politics, thinking about diplomacy, thinking about economics and how, how, how it all fits it. The Navy fits into this much broader picture of what's going on. Right. So Lewis's idea was, well, we need a, a book that, or a series of lectures that's going to sort of give us a foundational text in all this because it didn't really exist. Right. Uh, so Lawton in, in the UK is working on trying to build up something called naval history at the time. And so he's 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 working on, on, on that on the on the British side. Uh, well, Luce uh, identified a young uh, naval officer named Alfred Thayer Mahan, and he said, you know, this guy can maybe do something for me, and maybe he can write that book. And so he gave Mahan the job of writing what became the influence of sea power on history, which is one of the uh, probably foundational text of naval history, I think would be the, the way to talk about it. And uh, that's those are exactly the kind of things that uh, Mahan argued for in that book that, you know, the sea power mattered in history. And that was the whole thesis of it. And so the ways in which sea power connected to issues of geography and other kinds of national power was exactly what uh, Mahan thought needed to be studied. And those were the lectures that he gave at the college. And it was uh, published in 1890 and became an, uh, a bestseller in large part, of course, because it had champions, not just loose, but also Lawton reviewed it in the Edinburgh Review in uh, in the UK and sort of championed it in, in Britain. And that helped spread it to the Anglophone world. And then it got translated into all sorts of languages. I mean, the Chinese are, are reading Mahan today for the, for the same reasons. So uh, that's the origins. The War College comes out of that same push towards, uh, you know, thinking about navies more broadly in, in, in terms of instruments of national power. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating book. I've read it many years ago, just before I was going to do my PhD, um, and it's particularly interesting. You know, just for, just for how, how how thinking changes, and uh, now you can go through you know pretty much every chapter and explain why why Mahan was wrong at the time, not let alone why he was wrong now. Um, but a, a really really enjoyable book. Yeah, I don't um, recommend it as a first year. Uh, <laughs> It's not the easiest read, I have to say, <laughs> but no. it's, an it's an important book. Let's put it that way. Poetic it ain't. No. Uh, no. Um, a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So um, the Naval War College, it then goes through some fascinating periods. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in what happens kind of after each of the main world wars, because there's obviously a, you know, a major global crisis which has just happened. And that puts the, the huge burden on people who are supposed to be teaching about war to help them understand uh, and what's, what's coming next. So um, let's just talk a little bit about, you know, this era after the First World War. 
So the commander of U.S. naval forces in Europe was uh, Admiral William S. Sims uh, during the First World War. And he was uh, stationed in Europe, deployed there in 1917-1918. Formative experience for him, uh, got to uh, operate with the Royal Navy, of course, got to see uh, how the, the, the British did things. He brought a lot of that experience and those connections back uh, to Newport, where he'd been president just before he deployed uh, to Europe, and then he came back and requested that he become president again. And so Sims becomes uh, the president of the War College in uh, uh, the late, I think it's 1919 is the date. Um, and he um, he turns the War College, he really transforms it. He does two things. One is he's famous, right? Sims is uh, the uh, highest ranking or the that's, that's not technically correct. Sims is uh, a very important American naval officer. He's very charismatic. He knows how to work the press. Uh, he's famous when he comes home and he goes to Newport. And that attracts a lot of the up and coming naval officers in the Navy to try to get uh, assigned to Newport to come uh, to the War College. And so in the 20s, uh, following uh, Sims's presidency, uh, Newport becomes like the, the place to be if you're, if you're a naval officer going places. So uh, all but one of the admirals in the U.S. Navy on the day of Pearl Harbor had gone to the Naval War College. So it's a massive sort of think tank for the Navy in the 20s. And Sims turns it into this, uh, it's kind of tactically oriented. It's basically a problem-solving college. So the Navy's got a couple different problems it needs to think about in the 20s. It's things like you know underway replenishment or uh, what to do about aircraft carriers, or how are we going to fight the Japanese on the other side of the Pacific? Um, these kinds of questions are essential uh, for the Navy to be thinking about in the 20s. They're very sort of uh, hard-nosed and, and practical questions, and so Sims uh, really focuses the Navy's attention on creating a place for officers to work a lot of them out. So famously, uh, Ernie King, who's the chief of naval operations in the Second World War, uh, Chester Nimitz, Raymond Spruance, they all come through the college, Bull Halsey, they're all graduates of the college and they've all spent time in Newport um, writing theses, thinking about tactics. So uh, Nimitz, uh, for example, writes a thesis on tactics in which the first half of it, uh, this is part of his, his, his work there, is uh, you know an ex examination of what would happen if the British Navy attacked the US Navy uh, from across the Atlantic and how would we fight them, right? So that's not because they really worried about the British Navy coming across the Atlantic, but more because it was an exercise in thinking about a sort of defensive posture and how to handle uh, if you're on the receiving end of an attack like that. And then the second half was how would they go about attacking the Japanese on the other side of the Pacific is sort of the flip side of that. And that's the kind of uh, hard-nosed practical thinking that Sims encouraged officers to do uh, in the 20s. So Chester Nimitz graduated in uh, 1923, and he later said that um, nothing surprised him in the Pacific War except for the kamikazes. Now, he was saying that when he was talking to the Naval War College, and so it was a way of, you know... <laughs> um, yeah. But what he really meant by that was that they had gone through all, almost all of the practical problems that they were later going to face in the Pacific War uh, in, in the 20s. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that I, I love him kind of uh, feathering his own nest and say, you know, well done. Thanks for teaching us. We, we do did your job brilliantly. Um, how did they actually go about the teaching? I'm, I'm particularly interested in the history of wargaming. And I know that's a very important component of the curricula, curriculum of the Naval War College um, and has been since 1887. That's, you know, that's that's a real heritage there. 
Yeah, and I have to say, just as a disclosure, I, I don't work in the wargaming department, so I'm not the expert on, on the history of wargaming that, that you'd want. But um, certainly, uh, William McCarty Whittle is the um, sort of father of wargaming at the Naval War College. We name our wargaming building after him. Um, and he uh, was an officer who had an uh, injury to his eye, so he, he couldn't really deploy. But he comes up with a lot of the basic principles underlying what wargames are. And uh, it's it's got kind of an unfortunate name, if I'm honest, like war game makes it seem either frivolous or sort of like something that, you know, navies do to, to entertain themselves. It's not that. It's just about ways of thinking through problems. Wargaming is about sort of setting up scenarios in which you're going to present problems to officers, maybe, and, and encourage them to think about it. Or it's the way the Navy th tries to work through problems that it doesn't have an answer to. So it sets up scenarios to do that. And that could be a tabletop war game where, you know, Sam and I are playing across the table from each other. It's really simple, that sort of thing. Or it could be like today we have uh, incredibly elaborate war games that take place all around the globe. We get, you know, high ranking officers come to Newport and they're one part of the war game and it's all done electronically. And, and, and it's a, it's a big, uh, you know, fleet wide kind of exercise. Um, that's, the sort of full spectrum of wargaming. And and we actually still do some of that tabletop stuff uh, at, at Newport. Some of that stuff is really helpful in thinking about certain problems, but other times we need to be doing sort of more highly technical uh, things. And so wargaming is certainly a long, uh, has a long history at the college. It's something that the college has been doing uh, almost since its founding um, because it's a way for the Navy to think about things beyond the quarterdeck, beyond the ship, right? It's it's like, uh, how do we, you know, integrate our, our, our forces with others? And how do we think about uh, bigger problems that we don't necessarily have answers to? Yeah. I tell you what, I'm going to come back and talk to your expert on wargaming. I think convinced that would be absolutely fascinating. I'm sure everyone would like to know the details of how that works. Um, so what are your kind of core departments at the Naval War College? What, what do you teach and how do you teach it? So I think it's probably helpful to start with the students. The students uh, are, broadly speaking, divided into um, two groups, resident and not in resident. So the um, smaller group of about 500 come to Newport uh, every year, uh, and they spend a whole year here. And when they're here, they take uh, classes over three trimesters. Um, and they're sort of the three core academic departments are joint military operations, which is the department that helps them speak to other services. We can talk more about that in a minute if you want. Uh, national security affairs, and then strategy and policy. And those three departments uh, form the core parts of their curriculum, depending on they do them in different orders depending on how junior or senior they are, but that's the, the heart of it. They also take a course in leadership and ethics uh, that's been recently introduced. So those are the four different components of their of, of their curriculum. And then they take a couple of electives and maybe they do some other sort of uh, extra stuff. Like I run the graduate certificate in maritime history where they come and think about maritime history with us and write a, a, a thesis over the course of the year. So there are lots of different other things that they can do. Um, those three departments uh, date basically to the 70s. Um, there are antecedents of them all the way back uh, to the founding of the college, but um, th that's sort of the three components. How to talk to other services, how to uh, operate sort of in, uh, how does the Navy fit into broader national security questions, and then uh, the biggest questions of strategy and policy and national power. It's interesting that you're teaching us something broad on maritime history in general. Can you talk a little bit about that? Where, where do you start? What, what topics do you cover? So the graduate certificate in maritime history is basically uh, a supervisor kind of master's thesis program where the point is for the student to drive the topic that they're interested in in maritime history and then write something that is uh, ideally publishable at the end of it. 
Um, so they all take my course, War at Sea in the Age of Sail, uh, as a kind of foundational course that's a sort of disguised methods course in how historians think. Uh, and then they go off and take another set list of electives, so film and war in America or uh, other sort of maritime history uh, focused uh, courses like uh, on the Pacific War or something like that. And, and while they're doing all that, they're writing a uh, graduate level thesis with a faculty mentor uh, over the course of the year. So I'm working with a student right now on uh, the uh, operations in the West Indies during the Hundred Days in 1815. So he, that was a topic that he was interested in and it looked like we could get some sources despite COVID. And uh, so we, we've designed a project for him to be working on that sort of thing. Mm. It's made me wonder what I'd do. <laughs> I'm sure your interests change throughout your life as well. A struggle for so. sea power in uh, the American Revolution. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, the American Revolution. No, yeah. I know a bit about that. Yeah. I'm all right with that one. <laughs> um, um, I love the fact also that your students, they're, um, they're not just naval officers. You've got people there from the Air Force, Army, Marine, the Coast Guard as well, and also civilians from the State Department. So there's, um, let's just talk a little bit about you know, civilians as well, because what, what, the way that the Naval War College began, you've got, you've got naval officers teaching naval officers. And um, Evan, you're not a naval officer. Correct. Uh, and I should add that actually the first permanent faculty member might have even been an army officer. I need to check my notes on that. But so there's a long history of not naval officers teaching at the War College, but it's not until um, a few decades into the, the history of the college that we see a sort of healthy civilian faculty develop. But today there's a large civilian faculty. Um, so we're, we form a, a, a significant part of the teaching at, at the War College. So, for example, uh, last year I taught in the Strategy and Policy Department, and in that department they match civilian faculty members with military faculty members. And so every seminar is co-taught between one civilian and one uh, military faculty member. Uh, the military faculty member isn't necessarily a naval officer. They could be Air Force or Army or, or Marines or something like that. But the, they're assigned a new port as their as their post for a few years, and they uh, become a faculty member alongside the uh, uh, and, and work with the civilians. So um, the role of civilians at the at the War College is probably greater now than it than it was at the beginning, but it's uh, still something that um, the Navy values as a way to get you know high level academic expertise. No, I'm not saying I have high level academic expertise, but you know you bring in some outside experts to talk to naval officers because they think they might have something to say. So for a long time, there was a, a, a strong uh, tradition of sort of bringing guest lecturers in. So you go to Harvard or Brown or Yale or some of the nearby universities and try to get them, get faculty members to come to the college to give a series of lectures for a, a few months, maybe, or maybe a year, or just one-offs, depending on what they were, uh, what they needed. So um, yeah, the, the role of civilians at the college does change. In terms of students, the civilian students tend to be, you know, State Department or Department of Homeland Security, FBI that sort of thing and they come uh, as a they they tend to love to be here because it's a sort of year away from their you know daily grind and they come to learn about how uh, the navy thinks about things but also how the other services do and as you said we've got students from all the branches of the u.s military plus and we haven't even mentioned this about a hundred international officers a year um, which is a program that uh, dates from the 1950s when we decided that it was important in the context of the Cold War to bring our allies to Newport to talk about uh, how we do things. And so we've got, you know, officers from all around the world. I have a, uh, taught a Senegalese officer, a Peruvian officer. I work closely with a Chilean officer. So we've got a big, uh, you know, broad spectrum of, of international students that come every year that are really wonderful. And uh, they really add a lot to the sort of flavor of Newport. Yeah. 
It's it's a it's a wonderful place. I'm lucky to have been there. Um, we should just say something quickly about the Naval War College Museum. I mean, it's it, not only do you guys teach history, but you've got a little you've got a little collection there as well. The Naval War College Museum is uh, in the old Newport Poorhouse, which was the building that Stephen Luce got the government to give him uh, to found the War College in. So it's in the original building uh, where Mahan wrote and delivered his lectures for the influence of sea power. Uh, it's um, run by Naval History and Heritage Command out of DC, but it works closely obviously with the War College. Um, it's got an amazing collection of all sorts of things from um, a you know torpedoes that were developed at the torpedo station that was in Narragansett Bay for uh, many years uh, to um, the scrolls the really cool um, see if I can say this correctly here uh, when Matthew Perry native of Newport uh, Commodore Perry went to Japan in the 1850s and said basically we we have some things we need to talk about um, the Japanese uh, um, who who met him. Um, drew these amazing scrolls of what they thought American naval officers and ships looked like. And the originals of those are in the Naval War College Museum. So it's a, it's a, a collection that spans age of sail to the, to the present. Um, and it's got a lot of uh, really cool things. And it's in a building that is uh, historic just in and of itself. Yeah, I, I have to say those scrolls are, are truly, truly extraordinary. They're like, um, they're a Japanese fantasy of steam power, uh, you know, a steam warship. So they they haven't quite sort of seen it. I certainly haven't got close enough to actually look at what they're drawing. Um, and they get the colour of the eyes wrong as well. That's that's a thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating thing. And they're, they're sort of always on display because if the originals have to be put away for, uh, periodically, we've got facsimiles that are just as good, frankly, and and, and done really well on on the walls. So I encourage people to visit. It's free and open to the public. You have to book it in advance in order to figure out. Uh, how to arrange your time but it's if you ever come to Newport it's worth checking out yeah I think we should do a podcast on those scrolls themselves actually I, I'll tell you what even we'll let's let's sort that out and then all our listeners can get to have a look at them because they're absolutely wonderful um thank you so much for talking to me today I've really enjoyed it and I promise you I'm going to come back and find out some more awesome thanks Sam Thank you all so much for listening. I think we should make this just one part of a mini-series. We should definitely come back and find out about the British version, the Britannia Royal Naval Academy in Dartmouth. Now, do please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really, really makes all the difference. Please also check out the truly fantastic Mariner's Mirror Podcast's YouTube channel. It's got some spectacular videos. I can't emphasise this enough. Our latest being an animated 3D model of the Titanic created from the ship's original plans. It really is quite extraordinary. It allows you to uh, explore the ship in a way that you would never have done so before. Best of all, however, please, please join the Society for Nautical Research. Uh, your modest membership fee will go towards supporting this podcast, publishing the Mariner's Mirror quarterly journal and towards preserving our maritime past. In return, you get to become a member of an extremely friendly society with regular talks and events. You receive the Mariner's Mirror journal four times a year and you can come to our annual dinner on the gun decks of HMS Victory. You can find out about everything we do and you can join at snr.org.uk.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.